We're reading the whole of chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is, has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tested them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Thank you. Keep that open as we look through that today. Um, get organised here. That's going to be we've um, obviously I've known Mike and Mike for a while, and I think Jacqueline's known Jennifer for even longer. Um, but uh, we've been uh, uh, hearing about their plans for Trinity Grove for a long time, um, for many years, and I suspect you've been working alongside them, many of you, for that long as well. So it's good to be here. 
Uh, and it's good to actually see it happening. It's really exciting to see the gospel going out in this area. Um, I've been told on strict instructions, no embarrassing stories about Mike today, up from up front, but there's always morning tea, so um, uh, stay tuned for that. We're going to uh, look at Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to jump around a little bit a bit later in the talk, um, but we're, we're grappling this morning with this question of time, as Ecclesiastes 3 puts it to us. So how about I pray that I says what the Bible says and, uh, and the Spirit applies it to our heart. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks that you speak to us, that you don't um, keep us in the dark about what life is like, but uh, more importantly, Father, you don't keep us in the dark about what salvation looks like. Thank you that in this world where we're uncertain about what will happen next, where we have no control of the future, and we may have regrets about the past. Father, you think you're a God who is eternal. That you send your one and only Son so that we can have a certain future, forgiveness for the past. And we pray this morning as we think about the things that we can choose to do and the things that we can't control, that ultimately we might end up in trusting you uh, in where we end. Amen. Uh, there's this, where we live in Brisbane, uh, there's a, a stream uh, not far on, on a bike path where I can take the boys, and it's boy, I've got three boys, and so the boys want to do, they just really want to destroy things. And it's the perfect place for them to do that because you can just pick rocks off the side and chuck them in. My, my th- oldest son is looking shocked here that I would say something like that, but he's the uh, worst of the three. They're just <laughs> picking rocks up and chucking them into a stream. Um, but they also have a, uh, have a tendency to pick leaves off or sticks off and drop them in the river. You know, as kids, drop them in the river, see which ones go down first. And so they, they climb up on the bridge and they can see it going down, so they pick leaves up and my youngest one picks a rock up and tries to, that one doesn't work, something lighter. But they watch them go down. And the start, it's very calm, just kind of meandering along. And then here's the rapids. And going down, get stuck sometimes, getting thrown. And every now and then it might emerge on the other side, unscathed, you know, joyful at life, having survived the tribulations of the Brook River. Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 3 pictures life a little bit like this. It's this, it's this stream. But when he talks about time, it's not talking about you know, accountants, six-minute slots that they need to account for in order to charge the bill. It's not talking about dinner that's from six till seven o'clock. It's not talking about that kind of time, the 24-hour moment. It's talking about seasons in life. It's talking about, about moments that we have. It's, it's this uncontrollable force. And you know, with, with time, sometimes it can feel like things go so quickly and you want it to slow down. I feel like every time I start holidays, you blink and holidays is over. You're back at work again. And everyone says about your kids, you know, enjoy them when they're young because they grow up so quickly. And every now and then I look at my kids and think, no, I would like to blink now and just have this little bit over. Um, not often, not often, but every now and then, you know, when their behaviour isn't what it should be. Um, I'm sure that never happened to your kids, but it happens to mine. So every now and then, you, you, life go, you think life is going too quickly, you want to slow down. But sometimes it feels like it can't go quickly enough, can it? There's just those moments in life where you think, this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. This is the most pain I've ever had. I cannot wait for this to be over. I can't wait for this season of life to end. And for some, this pain and suffering that they experience in, in this broken world is so great that it's not a season of life that they want over. It, it's life itself. 
Life can sometimes feel like you're just drifting down the river, the brook, that leaf that's just enjoying the sun and the calm waters. And sometimes it can feel like you're through the rapids, in there, being thrown around with no end in sight. And what Ecclesiastes says is life is not one, nor is it the other. Life is all of those things. As it describes in those first eight verses, there you can see it. There is a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a pl- time to plant, time to uproot, kill, heal, tear down, build, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, scatter stones, gather them, embrace, refrain from embracing, search, give up, keep, throw away, tear, mend, silence, speak, love, hate, war and peace. This is what life is like. It's, it's the full kind of gamut of everything. It's the moving between one and the other, sometimes in the extreme, sometimes in the middle. But life and time is about all these things. A while ago, I brought home uh, for us to do a dinner um, this thing called the feeling wheel. Have you ever seen the feeling wheel before? It's like this, it's a, a coloured wheel that has lots of different adjectives to describe feelings. Because guys aren't very good at, I thought there were only three feelings. There was hungry and sad and angry. Uh, and then I realised there's hangry, which is... put it down to two because now they're just sad and hangry Um, but the feeling wheel gives you adjectives to describe how you're feeling it's it's the full gamut of emotions that's what Ecclesiastes is saying here this is this is what life is like it's everything it's all these things there's a time for all these things going on see time is the place where we experience life time is the place where we process what it looks like to be part of creation. But Ecclesiastes goes even further than that and tells us that time forces us to recognise who we are. That we actually are a part of creation. That we aren't the creator. And that's the question that the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to reflect on. Given that we are finite given that we have a beginning and an end that we are not in control how do we understand and reflect on the time that we have how do we understand and reflect on the time that we have what i want to do as we work through really verses 9 to 22 in Ecclesiastes. I want to put two questions up that Ecclesiastes poses and I'll talk about them. Then I'll talk, just as we conclude, about two responses we have to those questions. Here are the two questions that Ecclesiastes raises. The first one is this. It says, you can see it in verse 9 there. The first is that we cannot hold on to what we have. Therefore, what is the gain? Verse 9. What do workers gain? from their toil. That is, we work hard to build something, we work hard to get something, but then inevitably it will be taken away from us, whether through circumstance, through financial crashes, through ill health, it'll be taken away. And so where is the gain? Now the teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about this a little bit uh, throughout the book. In fact, you would have seen it last week in, in chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? 
What's the point? What's the point? In the first couple of years after college, I worked, as I said, in Brisbane uh, in a morning service, which was, I was looking after um, uh, families, young families, and there were a, a whole number of retirees, which was a great joy, a great joy. There was an older couple there in particular I spent a fair bit of time with in the first year. Um, they weren't that old. They were only recently retired. He'd worked in law enforcement for about 45 years. Uh, they'd raised a family, lovely family. He'd worked really hard. Uh, they'd, um, uh, they were a lovely, godly, generous couple. But they, their life had been focused on his retirement. 45 years working. He turned 65. He retired. And they were waiting to do all the things they had not done beforehand. They were going to enjoy the fruit of their labour. A trip around Australia, they'd bought the caravan. They were going to go to Europe. They had grandchildren with more on the way. And then not long after they finished, he finished and retired, he had a crippling car accident, which meant he couldn't travel. He couldn't look after his grandkids. He couldn't do all the things that he wanted to do. He'd planned 45 years, them together, 45 years to do, and he could not enjoy the fruits of his labour. Now, where's the gain in that? Where's the gain? What's the point if you, you can't hold on to it? What's the point if you can't have it after you've worked so hard to do it? And the tension exists in our heart in verse 10, 10 11, he says. That he's seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Everything is beautiful in its time, in its moment. He set eternity into our heart. Yet we can't fathom what God does from beginning and end. That we exist within time. Yet eternity rings in our hearts. And it's in these moments where it doesn't go as planned and we don't know how to undo it that we feel the injustice of time. That combination of being finite creatures and that brokenness of the world around us. It presents us with this challenge, doesn't it, of isn't it all meaningless then? What if life doesn't work out the way I want? What more do I have then than this life? There's just the time to be born and die and that doesn't work out. What is after that? Now here's the second question that Ecclesiastes poses. It says, instead of looking at the impact of a broken world out there and the impact that can have on us, it looks at the impact of, of broken people upon us. Verse 16. He looks out of the world and this is what he sees. He saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. He looks out in the world. He says, all too often I see injustice out there. Wickedness goes unpunished. Justice gets mislaid. The evil and the immoral, they thrive. And his problem is, if we're finite, if this is all we have, then the confronting issue here, this is the only life we have and there is injustice happening, how is it that these people will be held to account? If this is all there is, where's the justice? 
So the question here goes to both the wrongs that we see and the wrongs that we don't see, isn't it? You know, you just need to turn the news to see the wrongs that are in the world. But there's often much more personal wrongs that have happened to us that you will know about that no one else will know about. You think, well, where is the justice in that? Who will hold that person to account for what they did to me? And I think this, this area, this question, is really, in many ways, the great challenge of, of atheism, of people who want to think that there is no God at all. So I think inbuilt in us is a sense of justice, is a sense of wanting wrongs righted. There's variance between cultures, no matter where you travel. But I think I'd want to argue that there is this sense of eternity in our hearts, but there's also a sense of justice in our hearts as well, that we don't desire to see evil flourish. We don't desire to see evil flourish. We're not perfect, but generally people don't desire to see that. We long for wrongs committed against us, for people who do that to be held to account. And at our better moments, we probably long for people, other people who have been wronged by others, for that to be resolved as well. And while I would want to argue there's lots of reasons that I think we can argue for God from the Bible, starting with the person of Jesus, I think that's a place that I would start. But I think I'd also want to say the implications of both our sense of justice and the idea of justice itself points us not only towards God, but the need for someone to arbitrate and to decide and to hold to account. If there is no God and this life is all there is, then where's the justice? Because what you have to do in order to grapple with that idea, that inner sense of justice, if there's no God, you either have to say, well, let's just suppress the idea of justice. This is a social construct. It's just my conscience and we just need to get on with it. Or... Well, I need to take matters into my own hands because this is all there is. I've got 80.6 years. And if I don't get justice now, justice will never be done. But a world with God gives us much more scope to be able to do that, to be able to understand justice. And a worldview with Jesus in the picture gives us not just judgment, but grace as well, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Anyway, back to Ecclesiastes here. If we want to say, as with the teacher, this is all there is, we need to think through the implications. Need to think through the implications. So here are the challenges. This is pretty depressing. As Ecclesiastes can feel like it can be. Time can be without prediction. It can take everything you've worked for. And it doesn't answer to you and it doesn't answer to me. And injustice and evil in this life can seem to go unpunished, it says. Now, where Ecclesiastes wants to push us is to the logical conclusions for those things. Do you think your work can save you? Ecclesiastes will say, no, think again, it can't. Do you think you can lose yourself in pleasure and pretend that everything is okay? No, you can't. Think again, it says. 
Do you think that the entirety of your existence is about the 84.6 years that women will live and the 80.6 years, 0.5 years it is, because I've just lost 0.5 of my life there, for men? Do you think that's all it's about? Do you think your entirety of your existence can be summed up in that? Ecclesiastes says no. This is where I think for, for the society that we live in and that we're a part of, that we just get drawn into this and Ecclesiastes critiques us. It says, we have an easy life here in Australia, even easier in Adelaide than it is in Brisbane. It's a hard, cold city, Brisbane. But Adelaide, warm, very warm, very warm. Do you think that you can exist in this enjoyment, in this excess that we have here in Australia? Do you think it will cover over the questions that you are not asking? Please, yes, he says, no, no, think deeper. The things aren't always going to be like this. This is a season of life. So what does God say in response to these two things? Well, let me pull out from Ecclesiastes 3 here two things. When times are good and when times are hard. So let's start with when times are good. What is our response when times are good? Look, the first thing Ecclesiastes says throughout this book is to actually enjoy the good. To enjoy the good. Now that's... Feels like telling my mother how to, my grandmother how to suck eggs, isn't it? You know, of course you're going to enjoy the good. But I wonder whether we do, and Ecclesiastes recognizes that. But you see him say, verse 12 to 14, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. And know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Saying, enjoy the fruit of your labor while it's there. In those moments when you're surrounded by friends... When you're eating that medium to rare steak, properly cooked, or if you're a vegetarian, the nicely laid out tofu, in those moments where your kids are behaving, enjoy your kids. Enjoy the meal. Stop. When you are exercising the gifts that God has given you in your workplace with your friends, enjoy that. Enjoy who he's made you. Rejoice in that moment. Put your iPhone away. Get off Facebook. Don't worry about the perfect abs of the people on Instagram. That's just Michael, you know? Just stop following him. Don't worry about those things. Enjoy the moment and where you are. Enjoy what God has given you. I've realised about my parents over the last few years that they are far more appreciative of the moment that they live in than I am. Far more appreciative, far less cynical. So I'll get a coffee from a coffee shop, and as I drink, I'm critiquing the coffee. No, they've burned the beans. Should have roasted it better. 
Um, can't have an 11 year old making coffee. You need to be at least 40 and above, I think, to make a good coffee. I've just ruined my chance of getting coffee after, haven't I? But my parents will pull out of the jar of instant uh, coffee and I'll put it in the plunger and I'll push it down and add milk. And this is great, isn't it, to be here with this coffee? And I'm thinking, oh, I can't drink that stuff. Can I have a tea, please? But they are in the moment, they are there. They're enjoying what God has given them. A challenge for me, and I wonder whether it's a challenge for you as well, the challenge is actually being content in those moments. It's being content with what I have. It's not being discontent with what I don't have or what I want. It's not thinking that I can hold everything in tension perfectly all the time, hold on to this moment forever, or buying into the lie that I will be content if I have more. At the moment, we're looking uh, at houses to move. And as I look at houses on realestate.com.au, it's just a kind of black hole of my time. And I see things like a wine cellar. I think, oh, I don't really drink much wine. Then I see wine cellars that take up entire floors of houses. I'm thinking, yeah, I probably do need that, don't I? A pool? Well, actually, if I'm going to get a pool, I might as well get a spa as well. And the, uh, the spa... Two-car garage? No, I probably need a four-car garage. I know I've only got one car, but uh, you know, one day I'll get a Hummer. So my life won't be complete until I have that more thing. The time I have on this earth will be so much more enhanced. And at that moment I've moved from contentment and enjoyment to discontentment and longing. If I was to describe the problem from a different angle... I think I'd probably say I begin to buy into the lie that my contentment is found in this creation and what I can gather and hold rather than the creator himself. In Philippians 4, if you've got a Bible, turn up if you want to flick. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1181. In Philippians 4, uh, chapter 10, or verse 10, Paul says this. He's languishing in jail. He says, I rejoice greatly. In the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Now, here's Paul languishing in jail. He hasn't been having a great time, but he says that he's content. How is that possible? How is it possible that he's content there? And Paul must not have stayed on the Siebel on the Gold Coast, which is a very nice hotel. I have. If he had stayed there, he wouldn't be saying this. But he was. Here's why. Chapter 1, he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His content wasn't based on creation. It was based on the creator. If I'm here, it's about Jesus. If I die, I'm with him. He wasn't looking for salvation or meaning in things that would pass. He was looking for God, who was eternal. He wasn't placing his trust and hope in in being redeemed by what he could hold on to. No, instead, he was resting in what God had freely given him in Jesus 
See, Paul knew what Ecclesiastes points out in, in chapter 3, verse 18, where we were. The teacher says, I also said to myself, as for human, gods test them so they may see that they're like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals, the same fate awaits. One dies, the other dies, all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage. Everything is meaningless. All goes on, all comes to dust and to dust returns. Who knows if a human spirit rises upward or goes down to the earth? Now, Paul does know the last question. But also, he knows that he's part of creation, as the, the teacher points out in Ecclesiastes. We are part of this creation, and we are meant to enjoy it. But he's also aware that the eternal God had done so, something so incredible that he became part of his creation in order to rescue us from this lie that this time is all it's about and that we have to hold on to it or we have nothing else. It's in knowing this, that he was part of the creation, but that the creator loved him dearly. It's in knowing those things that Paul could enjoy the moment. He could find contentment without thinking that he needed to hold on to whatever it was he had or reclaim a glorious past. So as he starts to look out at the world, as he sees the world through the filter of of the creator and, and what he had done for him. When he thinks about money, Paul, Paul's first point of reference, if you have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, his first point of reference is, look at Jesus who gave up his riches so that I could have what I've got. Given that, let me tell you what it's like to use money. That's where he starts from. When Paul thinks about home and his end point, his reference point isn't some condo in Jerusalem overlooking the temple. No, his home is the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for him, for me to live his Christ, to die his gain. So as he travels this life, he experiences the good, he enjoys the hard. He knows all those things that he has, they're all pointers, but a pale shadow of what will be when he gets called home to glory. Here's the second thing Ecclesiastes pushes us to remember. It's that when times aren't great. As Mike mentioned in his talk last week, Ecclesiastes 9.11. If you flick over to Ecclesiastes 9.11, what it says is this. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, the wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. This week I uh, got some news uh, that one of the church planners connected to Geneva Bush. Uh, he had had leukaemia, he'd been having treatment for it, he had a complication, he went in for surgery this week. Uh, he has four young kids, a wife, he's mid-30s um, and he only played in church a few years ago. He had complications in hospital and he died a couple of late days later. Time and chance. Now, why him? Four kids. Loving wife. Church who loved him. Serving God. Wasn't perfect. But that's what Ecclesiastes says. Time brings the good. Time and chance brings our heart as well. Sometimes it's brokenness thrust upon us by our broken world. 
Sometimes it's brokenness and evil inflicted by broken people. The question Ecclesiastes wants us to ask is this. Where is it you'll look for in those hard times, in those moments, when time and chance happen to you? Because it will. Now Ecclesiastes points us in the direction that we need to explore, but it only sort of takes us part way there. You see in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, time to judge every deed. All people and all things are ultimately accountable to God. If you've ever been wronged, if you've ever been receiving end of evil, even if no one else knows about that, what's happened to you, the teacher says that God will ultimately hold that person to account. For you have been wronged, take comfort in that. The problem is, though is God's justice is a two-edged sword. You know, I've lost count of the number of times I've heard fighting coming from the kids' room one person decrying the evil of the other, crying out of justice from one voice, only to go in and administer justice to the person who is crying out for justice. God is a God of justice. But when God addresses evil and when God addresses brokenness, we cannot be so naive to think that we will sit outside of that. Which is why Ecclesiastes is only partly comfort here. Which is why when we get to the the New Testament, we see Jesus, he bridges the gap here. See, Ecclesiastes might say God will judge, but the death and the resurrection of Jesus says that God has judged. And Ecclesiastes will say this world is broken and can be cruel, but the Gospel will say God knows that intimately. He knows that intimately because he came to his creation and they crucified him. So take heart. He understands brokenness. And he's redeeming brokenness. In Lord of the Rings, um, Frodo is lamenting to Gandalf in the mines of Moria about the ring coming to him and the tragedy uh, that, that's brought him and his friends. And he says, look, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf's reply is, so do all who live to see such times. That's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Ecclesiastes seems to be a book of, of trial and pain and heartache and loss. But it says that is not everything about the world. That is not everything about the world. It says when we remember who we are, that we are part of this creation, it's then that we can enjoy the time that we're in. It's when we remember the God who reaches out to save that it's then as well we can take hope in the times that are hard. See, what the death and resurrection of Jesus allows us to do is actually take joy in what we have now without trying to hold on to it knowing that the good is not ultimate that we experience now. It's just a taste of what will come. And that the painful is not the last word, but just a reminder of what we're being saved from. Let me pray. Father, we hear the teacher when he says the wicked will be judged. 
Father, in our more honest moments, we know that we fall among that category. And we also hear the Apostle John when he says this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, we pray that in the lives that we have, where they are comfort and where they are pain, that we might know that you're a God who sits outside of time, who longs for us to know him, who came in order to save us. Father, we might enjoy the moment we're in, but long for the time as well, Father, when pain and brokenness is taken away and that eternity is enjoyed with you. And Father, we pray this for your glory. Amen.